0: Matthew chapter 17, and this morning we looked at uh, the first 13 verses in depth. We're not going to belabor the point in depth all over again, but um, it's a very important chapter. Jesus brings um, three of his disciples, we're going to see, with very uh, special privilege as he takes them up to this mountain. And um, remember, Jesus is walking under the shadow of the cross. He is... um, Walking towards Jerusalem, he is going to die. They think he's going to rule, set up the kingdom. And so that's a, a vast different mentality. Um, when Jesus has one thing in mind and the disciples have another thing in mind. Um, and again, we see the um, uh, the wrong concepts that men have about uh, the scriptures many times because of their... Um, their bad teaching or because of their um, their misconceived ideas of studying out of context there 's a lot of different ways we can deviate, and we have to make sure that we 're good students of the Word of god and so here in verse um, one through thirteen the Transfiguration of Jesus the parallel passages again are in mark nine um, one through eight um, and then uh, luke nine twenty eight through thirty six it gives you there basically and the privileged inner circle, once again, of Jesus. Never favoritism, never um, a respecter of persons, but knowing what's best, who who needs what, why he would do that. Uh, the time is related to that of Caesarea Philippi. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up to a high mountain by themselves. The chapter break, again, is unfortunate. Um, Luke and Mark give you a lot better break. Um, we... Um, Too often read chapter by chapter, we'll read a chapter a day or whatever it is, and then we lose a connection. Um, The uh, last verse of chapter 16, verse 28, should go with uh, chapter 17. Um, That should be verse 1. It would be a better break. And um, Luke says that it's eight days, and some people jump on the contradiction, or at least seeming contradiction, by the way, Luke 9, 28. But you've got to keep the relationship between the confession of Caesarea Philippi and the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, Luke is including those days at Philippi, and they convertate. So what seems to be a contradiction is really no contradiction at all as we look at it. And as you examine the gospel, they're not collusion. They didn't, they didn't talk it over with each other when they wrote their gospels. There's the freedom of each of them Giving the perspective that as you examine them, you see how they complete one another. They complement one another. um, And they supplement important details. Um, This high mountain traditionally is Mount Tabor, but nobody really believes that. It's too low. uh, And Mount Meron in Galilee either, but it's Mount Hermon. And there, Mount Hermon, again, the vicinity and the connection, all three gospels declare. It's right after the confession of Peter. That Jesus was the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And so the most common sense is that it is Mount Hermon. It stands about 9,200 feet high. Um, They even have skiing up there. There's a coffee shop up there we'll visit when we go to Israel um, this next month. And, And here he takes the three, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as snow. Transfigure, metamorphosis, caterpillar to a butterfly. From the inside out, revealing who Jesus was. This is his, his inner nature. He veiled his, his glory with a human body. Um, the Word became flesh, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 14. Uh, he was God, and he, and he was incarnate. And. Um, and They saw by sight now what they had believed by faith at Caesarea Philippi, that he was the son of the living God. Now they saw it with their own eyes. Um, Nothing that they were imagining, nothing that they were inventing, but something they were witnessing, the miraculous. As they see the uh, preview of the second return of Jesus Christ, the last verse of chapter 16 is that they would see the Son of Man coming in his glory, okay, in the kingdom. And so this is a preview of the second coming. That's what it says. Um, Luke alone tells us that it took place while Jesus is praying, Luke 9.29. Again, Luke gives the fullest prayer life of Jesus. Eight times he records Jesus praying. In verse 3, the appearance of the Old Testament saints here. Um, Out of nowhere, these men appear, and behold, Moses and Elijah appear to them. Moses represents the law, and he is a parallel to the resurrected saint. Uh, Here he is in his glorified body. We're going to be like that one of these days. He had been dead for 1,400 years, and as we are told in Deuteronomy 34, 6, um, that he God buried him some unknown particular location, and Jude nine tells us that uh, uh, Satan rebuked him when he tried to contend for his body. The Lord rebuke you, um, and so both New Testament um, and the Old give witness to him. Elijah represents the prophets, and is a parallel to those of us who will be raptured. If I live out my life and the Lord. Uh, raptures his church, I will be one of them. If I die, then the next generation, or whatever. And so here the parallel also that uh, Elisha was not because God took him in the world. When, as you know, Enoch walked with God, he was not because God took him. He's another one that didn't die. So there's only two men that have never died, and that's Enoch and Elijah. And so 2 Kings 2.11, you can see there when Elisha is taken up. And as you know, Elisha... Then, um, and then how you remember them is uh, S is after J. So Elijah and then Elisha picks up his mantle and he begins his ministry. And um, he had been taken up 900 years before, but here he is. Once again, he's glorified. Once we cease to exist in this life, Second uh, Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 says that we are instantly present before the Lord. Our body is put to the ground. Um, back to earth we go. And at the rapture, we will be caught up with them. The bodies will be glorified. So as we go up in the rapture, our bodies are glorified. They're transformed. And then those who have died before us, they're with Jesus. They come down in the cloud, First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. And then as we're going up, their bodies are going up, and they meet their glorified bodies. And we'll return to heaven. We'll be with the Lord forevermore. We are never found naked, Paul says twice in first, Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. What are we in? I don't know, but we're not naked, so don't worry about it. You're with Jesus, and you'll get your glorified body, okay? Now, Pastor Chuck, the late Pastor Chuck Smith, he, would te- he used to teach that we immediately receive our glorified body. And when I first was a Christian and teaching stuff like that, I I believe and I follow that. But the longer I study, I see that we don't receive our glorified bodies. We receive it at the rapture when we're caught up with, here's the word, them. Who's them? Them that are dead are already there. But them that are on the grave, their bodies, they're caught up to be glorified. And it's cleared up. Okay? Now, in verse 3... Again, the appearance here. The two were conversing with Jesus, talking with him. And they talked with Jesus about his decease, his exodus, his departure after his death and resurrection. Luke 9.31 tells us that, that would be accomplished in Jerusalem. The disciples think he's going to go rule and reign. Jesus is telling them from Caesarea Philippi, walking under the shadow of the cross, this is six months, I am going to die. I am going to rise from the dead. But they didn't have the room for a suffering Messiah. They they attribute the suffering of Isaiah 53 to the nation, not to the Messiah. That's how they explained it away. And so they were speaking about the kingdom um, with him. This, is, again, is a preview. Uh, Psalm 2, uh, it's a preview. Why do the heathen rage? Imagine a vain thing. God won't have, laugh with them. Have them in derision. He asks at the end to kiss his son, lest he be angry with you. Revelation 19, now uh, he comes back with a two-edged sword forth from his mouth, destroying the armies of the world that are there to attempt to stop him from setting up the kingdom. By the way, we'll be coming back with him. Read Revelation 19, uh, he's not going to need our help. Uh, it's the only time you're gonna find me on a horse. It'll be Revelation 19, verse four. The uh, assessment of Peter about the transfiguration. Peter addressed Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus. Um, now Luke 9:33 says that he, as he w- was awakened, he saw Moses and Elijah departing at this point. So we get a little clearer focus on what and when things happen. Peter was thinking of himself only. Listen to him. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, some people have said that um, Peter was um, giving uh, the other two equal standing with Jesus. I don't think he was really doing that. He just was experiencing a great time, and he was trying to prolong this thing, and The tabernacles are kind of little booths commemorations of things, the things that the Jews do on the uh, Feast of Tabernacles in remembrance of God's faithfulness in the wilderness to provide for them. So they do this for eight days. Uh, Lenski and other Greek scholars point out here the pronoun us is not referring to the other two, James and John, disciples to build the tabernacle with them, or it's good for us to be here. He's talking about me and you, Jesus. <laughs> Peter forgot all about these other two. It was just him and Jesus. That's the indicative here. And so Mark and Luke tell us Peter said this because he didn't know what to say and were afraid. And so as we said this morning, nervous talk. You know, sometimes we just talk because we don't know what to say or we think we have to say something. In verse 5, the father spoke and gave witness about his son here in the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, the father surrounded the three with his presence while he was still speaking. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A bright, uh, composed of light, the Shekinah glory. Kind of parallel to the divine presence of, of God's Shekinah glory in the Mount Sinai with Moses there in Exodus. Um, As he's making the covenant, chapter 1, chapter 19, chapter 40, Uh, the New Testament also shows uh, many theophanies, uh, appearances of God in clouds or lightning or voices, um, because God is spirit and we can't see him. He doesn't have hands or feet or eyes, as we said this morning. So when the Bible uses uh, human terms for God, that's called anthropomorphism. So that we know exactly what God is doing. But it doesn't mean that he has hands or feet. Um, Jesus told a woman of Samaria that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we also have Christophanies and that's the appearance of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament prior to the incarnation, many appearances. When you have the angel of the Lord, capital letters, that's a Christophany the majority of the time. Now they overshadowed, meaning they were enveloped in this cloud, and all three synoptic gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—record this. Luke says they were fearful as they entered the cloud in Luke nine thirty-four. And you can imagine, you know, the, when things, something like this, so miraculous, is taking place. This—it's almost like being taken up in a time capsule, if you will. Uh, and, and it's, a, it's a, a real experience. It's not something in their mind. It's not something that they're imagining or anything. Um, it, it's based on true facts, what they're seeing and experiencing. And the Father of Jesus confirmed, notice, the deity of Jesus. And suddenly a voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him, His incarnation. My beloved Son, His perfection in whom I am well pleased. His authority, hear Him. Durative present, all the time. This is what we are to do. All three Gospels record that that phrase, hear him, no one else. Throughout the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 says, God who at different times and in diverse manners spoke in times past the fathers, has in these last days spoken unto his dear son. And he goes on to share how he is the full and folgers and the creator and he created all things. And he is the ultimate in the last days spokesman for God. There is no one else. There is no mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's only one name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved, Jesus Christ. In Acts 4.12, Jesus himself said, am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. It's pretty clear, pretty narrow, pretty cranked down on who God honors to be that go-between, the ultimate high priest for mankind, Jesus Christ. People say, well, you guys aren't very open and you guys are too dogmatic and you guys just, you know. We didn't set the rules. The Father did. And he signed it in blood. And God help us if we make it any wider. Once again, here he speaks. Remember, in chapter 3, verse 17, the Father spoke at his baptism also. This my beloved Son, hear him. And he gave this as a sign to John that on whom the Spirit descended, he would be the Messiah um, in verse six, the response of the three apostles they revered and worshiped him, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces. This is uh, the posture of reverence and worship uh, uh, before one the presence of someone who is uh, superior to you. Uh, Daniel did this before some of the kings and others we see in the Old Testament. Um, By putting their faces to the ground, Ezekiel uh, constantly kept putting his face to the ground when he saw the vision of God in chapter 1, chapter 9. And God kept telling him, stand up, Ezekiel. Um, John in the book of Revelation also uh, worships God that way. They displayed the common godly fear, and they were greatly afraid. The presence of God. And when we talk about God, we study the things of God, and we read the scriptures, and we gather together, and we pray to him and all that. But for God to manifest himself before you would be an awesome thing. An awesome thing. I I can't even imagine. Um, But such is the privilege that he gave here to these three, and that he's given to many others. Uh, He appeared to Paul. He appeared to more than 500 after the resurrection. So it wasn't something they were just concocted or invented, but there was eyewitnesses prepared before all of those things happened, Paul says. In 7 and 8, the comfort of Jesus to the disciples uh, is given. In verse 7, Jesus comforted the three. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise. And do not be afraid, that touch of tenderness, the compassion of the Lord. Jesus knows. He, he knows what they're thinking. He knows their bad theology. He knows what they have in mind as they're going to go to Jerusalem. And, 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 and he knows exactly, and he's trying to comfort and prepare them. Um, this is an imperative command, literally. Stop being afraid. In other words, stop what started already. Because that's the natural response of being before God. Matthew alone says Jesus touched them and told them to arise. In verse 8, Jesus returned to his incarnate state after the glorification. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's always the way it should be, regardless of who we are before, regardless of who we know, regardless how um, impressive men may be. They're accolades their degrees or the uh, measure that God would use them they are but mere men and women and we shouldn't uh, revere any man at all Um, pastors take the title of reverend Um, uh, no one deserves that title that's reserved only for God you revere God you do not revere men Uh, call me pastor call me ex call me whatever but don't call me reverend when I get letters in the front office says, Reverend Xavier Rees, I know they don't know me. <laughs> okay. Uh, that title is only for God. Nobody else. Notice that here, um, as he returns, when they had lifted up the rise, they saw no one but Jesus. And Luke gives us the exact time and the fact that they did not say a word. It says, when the voice had ceased, the fathers, Jesus was found alone. Luke nine thirty five. So I love putting the Gospels together. I love just pulling them up and seeing the difference and, and, and the different details. And it just fills in like one of those crossword puzzles, you know, where you put them together. You start putting the outside and you work your way in. And all of a sudden, the more pieces you put, the more clear and the faster you can put it together. Um, just like that. Mark says, uh, it happened in an instant. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Mark 9.8. And regardless of what happens in your life, God's going to give you a wife, God's going to give you a husband, God's going to give you some great friends to walk through this life. To be there to pray for each other, to support one another, to enjoy your life, one another. But um, uh, the bottom line is that uh, at the end, it's just you and Jesus. (laughs) No matter what happens, even if all forsake Him, you make sure you walk with Jesus. You follow Him. Verse 9, the command to not reveal. The vision is given the time of the command. Now as they came down from the mountain, so they're returning the command to tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Uh, his command is is not new. He already gave that in chapter sixteen, verse twenty, when Jesus, Jesus asked, um, "Who do men say that I am?" And Peter said, "You're the Son of the Living God." Um, Jesus knew the fickleness of people, and they were looking, as we pointed out this morning, John 6.15 tells that they wanted to make him king at one time. And so they they were looking for a political, uh, triumphant king. And truly, Jesus was the king of the Jews, but not in the manner that they were expecting and wanted to make him some political leader that would lead them uh, to victory over Rome. This was not what it's about. Um, remember that Peter tells of this event in Second Peter one sixteen through eighteen, and says that uh, he did not use him or the other two apostles any cunning kind of devices to trick men about this experience. They literally saw what they saw, and 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 he says that they saw him glorified and they heard the voice from heaven in the holy mountain. Now, when he says "don't tell anybody," that means that these three. We're not even to tell the other nine. And, of course, it would be eight because Judas Iscariot is going to betray him. So Jesus selected these three for just this special occasion. Once again, our tendency would be to think that Jesus favors some over others. No, he does not. When God makes a choice, the Father or the Son or the Spirit of God, It is an absolute perfect choice that has no bias in it, has no favoritism, has nothing but absolute sovereign wisdom to perfection. And we commend ourselves to that. We trust God that he makes the right decisions. Lord, I don't know what you have for me. I don't know if you want to heal me. Lord, I don't know if you want to just let this disease overtake me because, yeah, I don't know. So I commend myself to you. Wow. Because we know that his will is the best, right? That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for one another. It doesn't mean we don't anoint one another with oil. And that doesn't mean we pray for healing. But the bottom line, I want God's best. God forbid that I should be so stupid as Hezekiah. When he sent Isaiah to say, get your house in order, you're going home. And he cried like a little girl all night. God sent Isaiah back and he says, tell him I'm going to extend his life for 15 years. Oh man, he was happy. But it was during those 15 years that Manasseh was born to him. The most wicked king ever born. He corrupted Jerusalem with idolatry, with corruption. It would have been better if he'd gone home. God forbid that I should be so self-concerned and so self-absorbed that I would, that God would say, okay, <laughs> if I'm going to mess things up, take me out of here. Why do I want to stick around and mess things up? Absolutely not. And so Luke says, but they kept quiet and they told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Second Peter is written towards the end of Peter's life. We don't have any record of this experience until then. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't share it because after the resurrection he could but we only have that record in 2 Peter. And that's towards the end of his life. Interesting. The reason is not given. But again, uh, Jesus knew the fickleness of the people. Verse 10 through 13, the disciples asked about the prophetic coming of Elisha. We've touched on it earlier in chapter 12 and chapter 14. It just seems that they just cannot connect the dots. So, in verse 10... It says, And the disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elisha is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer in at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. We've dealt with John before. John was a cousin of Jesus. He came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Luke chapter 1, verse 17, the angel Gabriel told his father Zacharias, fulfilling Malachi 3.1, the second coming will be the literal coming of Elisha in Malachi chapter 4 verse 4 through 5. He will be one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 verse 3 through 6. He will literally be here. And uh, Antichrist will put him to death after God is through with them. After they've given him a bad time and shutting up the heavens with rain and calling down fire and barbecuing people to try to stop him and bring plagues upon the earth. And uh, the whole world is just going to have a great party time because these cantankerous prophets have been such a problem and they finally overcome them and the whole world will be looking and God will raise them up on their feet and take them up to heaven and from that point on becomes great tribulation such as has never been or ever will be from that point on it would be better to die than to live in those days Jesus said horrible time you know we've had some pretty horrible times through man's history um world war one and world war two and korea and vietnam and 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 desert storm and the others um the civil war uh and many other wars that go on and man is a very vicious uh when it comes to wars. the atrocities the things that that men do to other men but i'll tell you the antichrist May will be the worst thing that has ever happened to this earth. He will be empowered by Satan. He will take uh, no prisoners. Whoever doesn't bow to him, whoever doesn't take his mark, will be beheaded. It's very, very clear in the scriptures. And yet, as it says that it's going to be so horrible, we also understand that there will be some who will survive that great tribulation how i don't know and when jesus returns he will separate the sheep from the goat matthew 25 on how the nations dealt with the nation of israel and he will allow those to enter the kingdom age and repopulate the world over again it will turn back to a pre-adamic state where all the animals are not fierce and Jesus will rule and reign, and we will rule and reign with him. But those that did not take the mark of the beast, they will have to be saved, repent, and for a thousand years, Satan will be bound, and then at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loose. And you think that having had Jesus reigning on the earth, having the whole environment and the earth reverted back, that they would follow Jesus? Nope. I think God does that just to silence all the sociologists, all the psychologists, that the problem is not the environment. The problem with man is his heart. Deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9. Jesus, in chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis, says that he looked down and he saw man's heart was evil continually. Then he brought the flood. And he started with eight new people. But they were sinners. So it starts all over again. We end up in the Tower of Babel. He scatters all the earth. They start all over again. (laughs) It's amazing. I don't know how our educators or any person can conclude that man is good. They don't have to search high and low. All they have to do is examine themselves. I am not good. My bent is towards evil. I have a potential for good because I'm creating the image and likeness of God. But our bent is towards evil, selfishness, envy, strife. That's why we need to be born again. That's why we need to ask God to forgive us. So he gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new nature so that we can please him. So that we can be of some asset to one another. So that we can be the bride of Christ, light and salt to this very, very dark world. We come now to verse 14 down to 21. You have the demon-possessed man here that is healed. The parallel passage is again, Mark 9, 14 through 29, and Luke nine thirty seven to 43. In 14 to 18, the request of the Father for a son's deliverance is given to us. In 14, the Father approached Jesus. The time was after coming down from the transfiguration. And when they had come to the multitudes, the crowds of people followed Jesus everywhere, as we've seen. And yet many of them were were prone to unbelief, to doubt, to confronting Jesus, being militant. They saw a crowd and the scribes were arguing with the disciples, Mark 9, 14 through 16 tells us. The crowds ran to him and asked what they were discussing with the disciples. Jesus comes to the rescue. He's just come down. You know, and they're there with the disciples. And Luke says, the next day, Luke nine thirty seven. So once again, we get a little more detail. The departure or the desperateness of the father here um, is, is declared that Jesus, the man came to him in verse 14, kneeling down to him and saying, he comes and pours his heart out. Uh, every one of us can identify. We've been fathers. We know what it is to have our child sick with a high fever or even maybe have some um, seizure or something. Or, you know, we would much rather have it afflict us than them. The agony is apparent. And even as your children grow up, you know, they're 30, 40, 50 years old, you still look them at your kids. And whatever they go through, you go through. Your son and a daughter for a short time, but when you're a parent for the rest of your life, it affects you. And so here, the posture of kneeling signifying one uh, who is greater than yourself. The posture of reverence and worship. In 15 and 16, the particular request of the father, he cried out for compassion, acknowledging him as Lord. Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is epileptic and suffers severely. Now Mark's description is, is much more description. And here where the father says, Lord, help my unbelief. I mean, he's just, you know, he, he falls on the fire. He, he, you know, he almost drowns. He, all these things that happen to him. The word mercy means compassion or pity. Epileptic fits here. Literally moonstruck or a lunatic from the word luna moon the extent of his condition was severe means a very bad plight he described his son's condition for he often falls into the fire often into the water mark 9:17 tells that he had a mute spirit so because of this possession he couldn't speak now, we've mentioned this many times that when the condition is given in Scripture that they were possessed and they were deaf or dumb or crippled, whatever, the text associate the malady with the possession. But it is wrong to conclude that anybody who has any of these maladies is demon-possessed always, okay? So be real careful. Only when the Scriptures declare its association is a legitimate um, truth for the possession. But it doesn't mean that a person that is dumb or, or deaf, that they are possessed also. So we have to be careful of that. Mark's gospel, again, is the most descriptive. Uh, 918, he says, and whatever, um, wherever it ceases him, It throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. I mean, you can imagine the horror of watching your son in this condition. The father told Jesus, again here, as we just read, that he had gone to the disciples. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. His hope was crushed as the disciples weren't able to heal him. The rebuke of Jesus comes next. It's for all, including the disciples. In verse 17, the charge of Jesus is then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation. We've heard these words before about uh, Capernaum, Grissom, and all those cities, but it's because of unbelief, the rejection. The word faithless here is simply unbelieving. Just not believing that God can do it. Perverse means to distort, to twist. He's addressing everybody present, including. The disciples here, remember he already chastened the past generations. The adulterous generation are you seeking a sign. No sign shall be given you except that spoken by the prophet Jonas. He spent three days and three nights in the heart of the world. So must the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just constant uh, demands for signs, but yet walking in unbelief. Um, we walk by faith, not by sight. We, we walk trusting God cannot lie. And we don't lead our life by emotions or by feelings or by, you know, circumstances. You know, some people say, you know, Lord, if if you really want me to go on this vacation, you know, let the phone ring in the next hour or something. Well, what kind of sign is that? You know what I mean? And, and they do that. Or they open the Bible. Okay, I'm going to just go. And then all of a sudden they land on the verse. And, <laughs> um, that's not the way you ask God to guide you. Uh, you know the word of God, you seek the Lord, you make your decisions based on wisdom, the objective truth of God. As you know, the disciples were given power to cast out demons back in chapter 10, verse 8, and they healed people. In fact, they gave them power to raise some from the dead. We're not told exactly uh, when they did that, but they had the ability. Now, all of a sudden, they um, this a young man come, is brought to them and nothing happens. And I have to confess to you, you know, sometimes people come and ask me to pray for them. They have cancer, um, failing kidneys or whatever it may be. And, and I anoint with all and I pray with all I can believe and lay hands on them. Um, but, you know, it's something that we all have to grapple with. Even though I, I, I think I'm believing, am I really believing, you know? And Lord, help my unbelief like this, Father. Um, especially when it comes close to home, um, a wife or a husband or a son or a daughter or a, a real good friend that you've walked with the Lord for a long time and you wish you could just lay your hands and, Lord, please heal him. And it, it's, 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 a, it's a contention that we live with. It's a tension, every one of us. And so, the disappointment of Jesus with the disciples, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. He would only have six months left with them. That's all he has. So he requests the demon-possessed person to be brought to him. In 18, the rebuke of the demon now comes by Jesus. Jesus cast out the demon. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. Jesus made him whole instantly. And the child was cured from that very hour. It's amazing. Now I've known people who God has spoken to when they've been sick with cancer or something like that and and, and and they just said, You know, I know God has healed me. And you know, when somebody tells you that you go, We're human, right? But there are people that I know that God spoke to them and God healed them right on the spot. Amazing. God is sovereign. Sometimes he honors the faith of the individual, sometimes he honors the faith of other people that are praying. And sometimes God just heals you, whether you believe or not. Sovereignty. We have all examples in Scripture. In 19 through 21, the inquiry of the disciples to Jesus for their inability to deliver this um, possessed son is given to us. In 19, the disciples came to ask about their failure. They realized that. The disciples gathered to Jesus with their concern. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, <laughs> They move away from the crowds. We've seen this before, right? With the parable, the kingdom parables, they came to him, Lord, interpret the parable for us. And he shared with them the parable of the sower privately and others. Um, the disciples wanted to know the reason why they. Could not expel the demon. Why could we not cast it out? The disciples were rebuked by Jesus. Listen. He declared it was the lack of faith. So Jesus said to them. Because of your unbelief. Wow. And sometimes as hard as we believe. We're believing. We don't believe. I have no answer for you. Again, it's a dilemma that we live with as human beings. And so we just trust God, we do what the scriptures tell us, and we believe God will be just, and we trust that we will trust him for that. In fact, he taught them as it was the amount of faith here. Not the amount, but the quality. See, sometimes we say, well, I, I have, my faith is too little. I, I need bigger faith. No, it's not, it's not the, the amount of faith. He says here, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Wow. Now, I believe this type of faith comes from the Lord, not from ourselves. I believe God will give a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, and he will bring it to pass. It's all him. Jesus declared their faith was not genuine. The mustard seed, once again, we've seen it before, is a proverbial saying. It is the smallest of seed and at times grows abnormally large. We saw that in chapter 13, verse 32. Sometimes God desires that we climb the mountain by faith. Other times he wants us to go through the mountain. Sometimes around the mountain. So faith is what God tells you to do and how to do it. And not to get caught up in some um, mechanical steps or trying to imitate. And you have this a lot in Christian television and hyper-Pentecostal groups where, you know, they try to imitate and they Send out cloths and, you know, if you just put this cloth on like Paul's handkerchiefs or on TV, if you put your hand on mine. And, 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 and trust me, God in his sovereignty sometimes does heal people because they come by faith in spite of these quacks, okay? And these charlatans that extract money from people, but God helped them. God, God has compassion on the people. But uh, Jesus never healed anybody the same way twice. His healings were always different. Always. And yet in spite of that, you have these charlatans that are always, always merchandising people. You know, when Pastor, the late Pastor Chuck Smith used to teach in the early 70s on, he used to expose many in Channel 40 and and the Pentecostal groups, and evangelists by name, and that he just would. And it's interesting that many of the um, Calvary chapels of the biggies, they, they, many of them don't speak against us anymore. <laughs> Maybe because they're now biggies too. We should never shirk back from exposing false doctrine or false teachers we shouldn't do it because we hate them we shouldn't do it because we are envious of them we should do it because we love god and we love the people of god and when we warn we warn out of love and concern for the body of christ Uh, we may be misunderstood we may even be accused but uh, we have to leave it there but nevertheless, we have to do it even as you as a father or a mother when you warn your children as they're growing up to not hang out with certain individuals. It's not because you hate the kid. It's because you know he's bad. And it's not good for your son or your daughter, right? Your motivation is love for them. Not hate for the other one. It's the same thing. Verse 21, the teaching on demon possession, he gives to them there are different kinds of demons, some more evil and powerful than others. However, this kind does not go out. Demon possession is real. Demons are nothing but fallen angels. Deliverance ministries that are very popular today teach that Christians can be demon-possessed. So they spend all their time Having meetings to cast out demons out of Christians. Deliverance ministries. They're easy to spot. And yet greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same vessel. No Christian can be demon possessed. There's not one example in scripture to such a case. What is the basis for it scripturally? None. Whatsoever. So they cast out the demon of gluttony, the demon of lust, the demon of cigarettes, the demon of this. And, you know, you still have these uh, generational sins from your family and the drugs and the sex and the this and the that. And, and and what they are is the works of the flesh. Go to Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. They're works of the flesh. That's our old sin nature. Listen, if you keep feeding the old man, the old woman, they're going to be strong. They're going to tear your head off. But if you feed the new man, the new woman. You'll be starving the old. That's your responsibility, my responsibility. And so again, it's very important that you understand um, demon possession. It has nothing to do with Christians at all. The instruction is given except by prayer and fasting. They're inquiring why. He says because of unbelief, but then he gives them, this is a special case. Jesus knows. He knows the demons. He knows all the detail. For God to direct a person when things of this sort come up, when someone would be demon-possessed, you have to deal with it. Now, there are people who have specific gifts and callings for these type of ministries. And um, if, if we don't, we shouldn't go around looking for demons. I don't run from Satan or demons, but I don't go looking for them. Okay? But if you do, here he says that God will direct a person. And the person has to be totally dependent on Lord, prayer and fasting so that God directs you. And so that your ear is tuned to God. Okay? Not that the demon is going to possess you, but that you may be victorious in delivering that person. Once the demon comes out, we've already looked at other texts, that that house is swept and garnished and is empty, and that demon will go get seven other demons worse than him, and they'll come back. And the latter end will be worse than the first. So when there's exorcism or a casting out of a a demon-possessed person, then what you want to do is present the gospel; they might accept Christ, so that their vessel can be filled with light, because that demon's going to come back, and if light's in there, he cannot enter. Now there will be warfare, there will be oppression, but there will not be possession. Very, very clear. In 22, to 23. Oh, by the way, this um, this verse is omitted in the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus manuscripts. The ones that the scholars say are the best manuscripts, they're not. (laughs) They're Alexandrian texts. Interesting. 22 to 23, we have the prediction of Jesus about his death and resurrection again. 22, the repeated revelation of Jesus' betrayal here. The location is stated. Now, while they were uh, staying in Galilee, remember, they're in the northern region. They're headed for Jerusalem. The certainty of the betrayal is predicted. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. There's no doubt about this. The title Son of Man speaks of his Messiahship, his incarnation. This was his mission. Remember, Peter rebuked Jesus at Caesarea Philippi because he had prophesied that he was going to suffer at the hand of the elders. And Jesus told him, get thee behind me, Satan. He he just gave the revelation you're the Son of the Living God and then the next minute he's rebuking Jesus and Jesus gets out behind me, Satan. He says, You do not discern the things of God from the things of man. How do we know whether the how does it match up with God's word? If it aligns with God's word, then it's God's word and God's will. But if I'm contradicting God's word, then I'm off the wall. Not God's word. In 23, the repeated revelation of the death and resurrection. From Caesarea Philippi on, Jesus never mentions his death without his resurrection, yet the disciples never heard it. Because of the Jewish perspective of a conquering Messiah, not a suffering Messiah. He gave the certainty of his death and resurrection, and they will kill him. And the third day he will rise up or he will be raised up. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He will suffer many things at the hands of the elders. The third day, very specific. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, pained by this information. Mark says they were afraid to ask him. Mark 9.32 Hmm. 24 down to 27 you have the payment of taxes by Peter and Jesus um, might help you out taxes are around the corner next week um, you've got to pay your taxes uh, today's the 8th and 2 days your house taxes are due and then the 16th uh, 15th or 16th I think it's the 15th this year that last year they gave us an extra day yeah, so the first 3 months you work for the government the rest you can keep Verse 24 and 25, the inquiry about Jesus paying taxes is given. The location is stated again when they had come to Capernaum. This was the city of Jesus. This was the center of his ministry. If, if you're standing on the um, east side of the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias, and, 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 and you put your hand at the corner, on the west-north corner, and to the west corner, that would occupy three quarters of the ministry of Jesus' life. Right in that region. Now he's headed towards Jerusalem. Capernaum's right up there. The city of Jesus. He moved from Nazareth there. Very busy city. A tax collecting center. Uh, a lot of people coming in and out. A great place to preach the gospel. Um, Jesus knew they were attempting to trap him here. He says and when he had come into the house, Jesus... Um, I'm sorry, let me back up. I, I miss here. The, the, the questioning of Peter here, um, those who received the temple tax, it says it came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Again, as I said, they're always looking to trap him, right? Uh, you know, one day they came and says, you know, this guy had a wife and, you know, he, he died without having children. Then the next brother and the next brother. All seven of them had him. Now, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? You know, always trying to trap him. He said, well, you do where? Because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For they are neither given in marriage in heaven like the angels. And he just shut them up. He just nailed them. And so here, the seed of custom confronts Peter. By a tax collector. And the tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were low lives. They weren't allowed in synagogues. Um, uh, Matthew was a tax collector. And so he was considered a greater traitor because he was betraying his own nation. They wanted to know if Jesus paid taxes. The temple tax was half a shekel, as you know, 20 years old on up. Exodus chapter 30, 12 through 16. Peter says, yes. And the question on taxes now is asked of Jesus to Peter. Um, Jesus knew that they were attempting to trap him. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or strangers? Uh, They tax strangers, of course, to relieve the, the citizens. Now, our governors, our government... Place attack relieves a stranger and gives them all the benefits and they take our money. They've jacked us up. They've reversed it. It's unnatural. Nations don't do that if they love their citizens and they care for them. The answer was obvious. Peter said to him, from strangers, Jesus said to them, then the, son, the sons are free. Jesus was the son of God. He created everything. He owned everything. He could be excluded. Yet Jesus nevertheless would, would submit to the government of Rome. He says, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened his mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Wouldn't that be great for this tax season? Jesus did not want to stumble anybody. He instructed Peter to just, um, you know, bait his hook and throw it out to get some money. Finding the fish's mouth, the word there for a piece of money was equal to four addicts or two Alexandrian drachmas, a full shekel for both. Half a shekel straight across. Didn't matter if you were male or female, did me, or 20 or 50. Half a shekel was a temple tax. Straight across. And so, here we have Jesus once again. On his way to Jerusalem. Under the shadow of the cross. The disciples are out in La La Land. (laughs) They're traveling with him, but they're not mentally together with him. Uh, they, they have greater expectations for themselves. And sometimes that's us. And God deals with us very gentle and very compassionate. And yeah, he comes alongside and rebukes us gently and directs us. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, you would just continue to deal with our hearts. And we thank you for your word that we're able to gather together. Thank you for this building, Lord, the comfort we have, everything, Lord. Lord, I pray for every person that's here. I pray that you speak to our hearts. And Lord, those that perhaps do not know you, those over the internet or the radio, Lord, that you would deal with them. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe that Jesus is God, who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, then you can be saved. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. If your desire is to be forgiven, this is your prayer of repentance. You can repeat it right where you sit right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.